The Word of the Lord from the Holy Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 1, verses 29 to 39. Immediately, Jesus left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came, and he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and casting out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. The text for my gospel proclamation is from the Holy Gospel of St. Mark that I just finished reading for you and serves as the basis of our fifth Sunday after the Epiphany theme. He means everything. I don't know how many of you have heard this phrase, but it's a phrase I grew up with, and to the frustration of many, I do tend to abide by it. And the phrase is, say what you mean and mean what you say. Now, that may seem odd to you that people are frustrated by anyone that would say what they mean and mean what they say. But the truth is, most in our culture today simply don't understand that, and it has made me the weird one on many occasions. You can lay it at the feet of politicians, media, or the purveyors of misinformation who have taught us nobody says what they really mean. And for me, especially as a public figure with thousands of public speeches or sermons, as you know it if you're a faithful listener, people like to splice what I say to find a deeper meaning or even make my words the opposite of what they actually say. You see, we have been trained in the art of, as Mark Twain says so eloquently, believing anything anyone tells us unless they tell us the truth. I remember many a conversation and meetings on the record where people would come back with something entirely different than what I said. That has even led to people telling people what they think I would say before I ever said it and being wholly inconsistent with what I personally believe. Now, almost none of it was nefarious, so I didn't care when I found out. I simply asked people, who told you that? Because I never said that. That usually solves miscommunication right on the spot. 
like one time at my former parish, our LWML chapter president of the Lutheran Women's Missionary League, wanted to have their own checkbook and account at the church. So they didn't have to go through the treasurer to disperse monies. Well, the council and voters felt that was not necessary as the treasurer always made sure they had an accurate rendering of their funds and readily made funds available when they requested the money. But the president of the LWML, Lutheran Women's Missionary League chapter, didn't like that at all when she found out later having missed the voters' meeting. And when she found out, she said to Marcy, who is my wife, we can't have our own checkbook and checking account? Well, Pastor Kappel is not going to like that. I always thought it was so funny because Marcy asked me immediately when she got home, concerned, why I would not voice that opinion at the voters' meeting. I simply replied, well, I didn't voice that opinion because that was not my opinion. I support whatever the voters wanted and didn't think they needed a checkbook or checking account either. I wonder where she got that. Sometimes the gossipers don't always think about who they're gossiping with. But another time, it was much worse. I was working with a woman who was married three times and was interested in being a young couple's mentor for their marriages. She actually said she considered herself an expert at marriage because she had been married three times. All I said in reply was, I think the ones that are successful in marriage are the ones that have stayed together in their first marriage, and that's the examples we should look to. She seemed to accept my statement at the time, but apparently went home and told her third husband a different story, to which he called me angrily, berating me for calling his wife a bad mother, a bad wife, and a bad role model for young married couples. That was a lot to take in. But when I told him what I literally said, he calmed down immediately, confirming it with her on the other end of the line. She simply read too much into what I was saying and took it personally when I was speaking generally about who would be good mentors for young newly married couples. She's actually a fine mother, a fine wife, just not the best example of how to keep your marriage going when she and her previous two husbands failed to do just that. But that's exactly why I make every effort to say what I mean and mean what I say. That's why my sermons are carefully edited, full manuscripts with documentation when necessary. That's why I record my sermons so anyone can easily listen to them in my own voice and hear my emphasis and inflections. And that's why I even write my prayers out when called upon to pray in advance at community events. I want to make every effort to say what I mean and mean what I say. Today's gospel has a lot of pastors preaching it over the years, but unfortunately, they frequently miss what it says and thereby frequently miss what it means. So Jesus straight away leaves the synagogue in Capernaum with Jacob and John coming to the house of Simon and Andrew. And if you're paying attention right now, you know the pericope said it was James and John, not Jacob and John. You see, in the 14th century, John Wycliffe 
made the first Bible translation into English and translated Jacobus, the Greek for Jacob, as James. However, in both the Old and New Testament, for some reason, he arbitrarily used the name of Jacob for the patriarch. In all future English translation, the name stuck, especially after 1611, when King James I sponsored the translation, then called the authorized version. And since 1797, it has been called the King James Bible. Hence, one translation has forever stuck Jacob with the popular English name, James. Now we see an example where our English translations do not say what they mean and mean what they say. Albeit a silly, completely innocent example. It just goes to show you what happens when you're not devoting yourself to God's word and only trusting others as to what it says. Billy Graham, the infamous evangelist, is the perfect example of this for a pastor who did not know Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic. He famously said he always had to trust what other people said God's word said because he couldn't check it for himself. So let's get back to the source in our gospel today and look at what many say it says. And take the time to see what it says. And maybe, just maybe, we will understand that God says what he means and means what he says. Now, let me ask you, why are you here? Think about that for a moment, if you would. Now, let me ask you, why do you do what you do for a living? And why do you live where you live? Let me just summarize all three of those questions by asking you, what is your purpose here? When I first entered the workforce over 30 years ago after college, there was a famous book everyone was reading called, What Color Is Your Parachute? I never read it, but by all accounts related to me, it seems to be a basic self-evaluation tool that helps you define your passions, your values, and skills that can be directed in a more definable career path. I know many of my coworkers were into it and using it to define more clearly what their career goals could look like for a more satisfying career. Later, when I attended seminary, I saw the same technique applied to spiritual gifts inventories and psychological mapping of personality types that help you to build better teams for church work. In a word, trying to define purpose. Over the years, I've found that they are largely inorganic and tantamount to reading the book How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie and simply quoting it for any given situation to get the results you want out of people. I, personally, have found all of this to be fake, processed, and completely inorganic. If I'm saying what I mean and meaning what I say. But what I've never been disappointed in is how Jesus comes to us and gives us real purpose. Today's scene at Simon and Andrew's house is just that simple. 
Now the basic reader and preacher would look at this and say, it's a miracle. Jesus healed Simon's mother-in-law. Whoop-dee-doo. They might add the first pope was obviously married as most Catholics do not confess in the denomination's faith. Okay, whatever. But what everyone seems to miss and what God is saying is he raised her, taking her by the hand and the fever left her and she began to minister to them. Notice it doesn't say serve. And we miss the point of her resurrection altogether if we miss that she was a diaconate, a minister, a worker for the ministry of Jesus. Next, we see that Jesus heals many who are in a bad way and casts out demons, not letting them speak. Opportunistic preachers have suggested over the years that this is what ministry is supposed to be. Talking to demons, naming them, casting them out, healing ministry. But there are two things wrong with that understanding of what Jesus is doing. Healing is not his priority. Now, please, don't get me wrong, especially those of you that I minister to directly. I pray for your healing all the time. You know that I will anoint you for healing every chance I get. You know that I never like to see anyone in pain. After all, with my back problems, pain management, prostrate problems, heart condition, and general decline in my health this year, I want to be healed as well. And please don't worry, I have the six best doctors in the Golden Triangle working tirelessly around the clock to fix me. But I know, even everything is healed for you and for me, it's never permanent. It is always temporary. After all, death comes for us all. And while talking to demons and casting out demons seems exotic and exciting and all the cool churches are doing it, Jesus won't even let the demons speak at all. And when he talks to them, he says almost nothing at all. After all, the demons are terrible witness to who Jesus is and the real purpose for which he came. So Jesus shows us what he came for today and communicates it saying what he means and meaning what he says, I will preach. I know, you all think that is my job. But if we're being technical with our gospel today, clearly it's Jesus' job. And I think we mess Jesus up a lot. You ever heard of the buddy Jesus? It came from a farcical movie some time ago about angels coming down to earth who weren't very good at their job. Well, some entrepreneurial Christians grabbed that idea and actually made stuffed Bible buddies Jesus dolls you could buy on eBay and cuddle with. They're still available to this day. The whole Jesus is here to comfort me idea. I also heard a pastor say jokingly this week that we're spending so much money on our ministry, our prayers need to say, Jesus, pay your bills. It's all harmless and kind of funny, but it does betray the way we use Jesus for our ends. And we don't pay close attention to what he says, so we know what he means.
for Jesus, the healings, the casting out of demons, the feeding of the hungry, and the caring for the poor all lead to what he's here to do. And that is the preaching. Proclaiming life eternal for those who believe in him. Foreshadowing his death and resurrection so we believe we are saved because he took the punishment for our sin. Then preaching, because it's not the pastor's job. It's not even Jesus' job anymore. It's the job of everyone who believes Jesus lives in and through them. And because he made his dwelling in us and with us to make us his collective church on earth, now we can say what he says and mean what he means in everything. Amen. Now may that peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus always. Amen. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen. The text for our gospel proclamation comes from the epistle to the church in Corinth in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, which says, <clears throat> Because of this, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience and the sight of God. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Six for our gospel proclamation is the passage that I just finished reading for you and serves as the basis of our theme for the transfiguration of our Lord. Only Jesus can reveal it to us. Today, Paul tells us he has this ministry, a ministry that he is not ashamed of because they had received God's mercy. And because they had received God's mercy, they realized there was no reason to feel bad anymore. Forgiveness of self, like Paul is alluding to, is not readily accepted these days. When someone makes a mistake, the community around them generally will not forgive them as much as they may be ready to forgive themselves. Full disclosure, this has been my personal problem nearly all my life. I can sin, recognize the sin, repent of said sin, and then I can move on, not losing heart, as Paul says in our epistle lesson. And for that, I am exceedingly grateful to God. Now, some have suggested that I'm living in Mark's la-la land, and I imagine that's probably true. Some have been angry with me because I don't continue to feel bad. And some have suggested that I never repented of said sin at all. 
The reality is, I simply believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin. Every sin I ever committed and every sin I will ever commit. I believe he paid for all my sin right there on the cross. One of my best supporters in the ministry and most helpful peer always encouraged me with this saying, we all make mistakes. Just don't keep on making the same ones. I've always appreciated that sentiment because it helped me move on, even though I occasionally found ways of making new mistakes as well. But I learned so much more from my mistakes than I ever did from my successes that I can really appreciate how God molded me and continues to spiritually form me through confession and absolution every day. Paul deals with this problem in the church in his day, but he is being accused of so much more as well. In chapter 1, verse 17, we see that opponents were accusing Paul of being fickle in his care of the Corinthian church. In chapter 10, verse 10, they falsely claimed that he was afraid to be bold in person. Paul ultimately defends not himself, but the ministry of Jesus that comes in apparent weakness and foolishness. They also had said that he used underhand methods, that he exercised an unscrupulous cleverness to get his own way, and that he adulterated the message of the gospel. You know, from my message last week, how often that's happened to me personally. So this week's lesson comforted me greatly knowing that when our motives are misinterpreted, when our actions are misconstrued, and when the words are twisted out of their real meaning, it is a comfort to remember that that also happened to no less of a man than Paul himself. And I think we can understand Paul's struggle in a similar way today. How many of you have been judged by that friend or family member that says they know what Jesus means by love, but then they never even cracked a Bible to see what the only record of who he is says. How many of us have been accused of being duped by mythology and made-up stories? How many of us have lost family and friends who abandoned their faith in Christ to follow the whims of a pagan world? I think we all have our stories and can tell them well with sorrow in our hearts, but even more with confidence in Christ. Well, believe it or not, Paul's message is as much for them as it is for us today. For us in the church, Paul warns against the implied <coughs> sin for us in the church, Paul warns against the implied sin comparable to those that fell into captivity in Babylon for their limitless sins against God. For sure, we can run into the temptation to recite his commands and worship correctly, but then commit adultery, slander, and even theft. Adultery by lusting after that which God has not given to us. Slandering and misrepresenting our brothers and sisters in Christ, and even robbing God in our tithes and contributions. 
But we must remember what the real point of all these remonstrations are, lest we believe we can check a box and be found commendable before God. As Luther says, certainly God does not say this as if he really cared about tithes or our slander or our adultery. Rather, he says it to preserve the ministry of the word. This is all Paul cares about amid the church hustlers who seek to leech every resource possible to their own gain. He knows they're deceiving by the word of God while he is preserving the word of God. For sure, those who are deceiving by God's word, the gospel is hidden from them because of their willful deceit. Deceiving their brothers and sisters as to their true intentions. Deceiving themselves into believing they're okay just the way they are. And assuming they can deceive God, which they cannot, he knows their hearts and minds and thwarts their attempts to undermine the gospel's proclamation. After looking at the degradation of this world, we may assume this present age is incurable, beyond help, an infection to the church and a community, and it must be cut out. That the entirety of this evil age is hostile to God. In such unrepentant fashion, we must relegate ourselves to the ranks of monastic existence so they can't breach the walls of our closed society and potentially poison our spiritual well of life. But a better understanding of what Paul is saying would be more like this. God has not abandoned them, nor are they beyond help. Everyone, regardless are children of God who need to know they are members of the family of Christ and have a savior from their sin. Indeed, many of them have abandoned God and their actions have rendered them incapable of believing him anymore. But thanks be to God, it never depended on their ability to believe to begin with. For we all know that if we had any part in our faith leading to salvation, when we break, our faith breaks too. And we are lost. But when God, the Holy Spirit, moves in our hearts through the word, then we know we had no part in it. So we know it's always good because God put it there. Through Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit, he sent, now we can see God and have full access to God. Without Jesus, we're not looking to God at all. As John 8, 47 teaches us, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is you are not of God. When God comes to us and makes his dwelling in us, we can hear him and understand him like no one else can. To those who reject Jesus, his message of truth for salvation through his death and resurrection, a stern warning is imparted to them in John chapter five. The father who sent me as himself born witness about me. His voice, you have never heard. His form, you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. 
I do not receive glory from people, but I know what you do not have the love of God within you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, the light that reveals God in our life is already kindled by the work of his Holy Spirit, so that all may be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The light that was separated from the darkness at creation was a precursor of the light that would remove the darkness from our hearts. And the light that came into the world has established his eternal illumination in the city that does not need the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the lamp. So Jesus is the light. Jesus is the path. And only Jesus can reveal it to us. Now may that peace that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus always. Amen.